0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at ccsdham. The following lecture was presented on the 6th of December, 2018, by Dr. Amy Doughton, Director of Studies of the Margaret Beaufort Institute of Theology in Cambridge. The lecture was given as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series and is entitled, Redistribution, Recognition, and Catholic Social Teaching. So in this paper, I'm grappling with... Two analytical, analytical categories of critical theory, redistribution and recognition. Now these are terms that for three decades now have characterized debate within critical theory regarding the proper lens for addressing questions of social justice, both in terms of the diagnosis of social situations and normatively for shaping our response to injustice. My interest in this debate is twofold. Firstly, I think that as a debate, it has been prescient in articulating some of the fault lines in our contemporary political discourse uh, around justice and especially in relation to things like identity politics. It strikes me that these increasingly worn out descriptions of identity politics are perhaps being refracted through these analytical lenses on justice of recognition and redistribution. But secondly, I'm interested in the way that we might receive and reframe these insights Uh, in a theological register, and the value of doing so, I think, is in um, both in terms of what it reveals about the theological tradition in question, both positively and critically, um, but also about perhaps encouraging theology to engage through these registers in broader public discussion and justice. And specifically, I want to do that in relation to Catholic social teaching. Uh, My hypothesis is that CST already holds both redistribution and recognition as priorities, Um, uh, for community and for political endeavour, but it does so by way of its account of human personhood and flourishing, rather than leaving it on this normative level. So we'll see if these things can be done, and we'll see if you think they're worth doing, by the conclusion of the paper. Uh, Let me begin with critical theory. And I should just note, on your handouts, I've given you the, the really long quotations, where it's actually quite difficult, to sort of quite easy to get lost in the middle of them. So that's what you've got in front of you. I'll give you a shout when we reach them. So this debate over redistribution and recognition as lenses of analysis for social justice. This is largely conducted between Nancy Fraser and Axel Honneth in the early years of the 2000s. Uh, Following Honneth's work on recognition in the early 90s, which was part of a big increase in focus on recognition from all sorts of disciplines, including philosophy and the work of Charles Taylor. It's a debate that's continued to shape critical theory conversations since then, um, even while Fraser and Honneth have themselves uh, renewed and and rethought their uh, thinking in various ways. For those who have not come across it, critical theory nominally begins in the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt from the 1920s and hence it's frequently referred to in terms of the Frankfurt School as well. And it offers an intellectual heritage through the 20th century informed by its Marxist foundations, seeking to critically assess concrete forms of living in order to inform cultural self-understanding with a view to transformation. So Fraser and Honneth, both much more recent scholars of critical theory, understand their own methodology in that same normative trajectory. But the organising question of critical theory has changed a little bit from the 1920s, as we might expect. So, um, as Honneth puts it, the question is no longer, why has the proletariat not yet revolted? (laughs) But um, instead is concerned with um, constitutive questions around social justice and social integration. These are the, the sort of key terms that he thinks are driving what's going on in critical theory. And specifically, then, Fraser and Honeth's focus is on how the real experiences of vulnerable persons in our communities might signal to a more universal duty. That's their goal, specifically with respect to social justice and integration. Critical theory attempts to move from identifying empirical realities to seeking significance beyond their status as data. So um, empirical reality that points beyond itself at the same time. Again, in Axel Honneth's terms, social theory with normative content. Now, as we'll see, Fraser and Honneth conceive of how to do that signalling in slightly different ways, but both of them see their work as an attempt to rejuvenate and renew critical theory for our current times. Honneth's approach is via recognition, and that's where I want to start. Honeth is arguing that what sits at the heart of all social exclusion is the experienced failure to be recognized as oneself. He roots this, as I do not have sufficient time to do so this evening, uh, in his extensive work on Hegel's early work from Jena, uh, from early in his career. And Honeth argues that recognition is experienced through different spheres. So uh, (laughs) love within families, Uh, legal recognition within uh, juridical frameworks, and through esteem in wider social situations and practices. So this isn't solely about legal recognition as an anonymous citizen for Honeth, although that is a facet. Rather, it's also the person recognised for themselves. That's the term he keeps coming back to. There's two important things to note about this. Firstly, love, law, social esteem, families, legislative frameworks, wider social practices, Onuf is really clear that these are historically developed forms of recognition. So they weren't always the forms of recognition and they need not be limited to those forms in the future. Uh, There will perhaps be other spheres in the future. And of course in the concrete, because these are historically developed, they do not always work. That's really crucial. He's not suggesting that these are somehow idealised forms that we always experience, while we always have recognition from our family, for example. Instead, they all carry the risk of profound misrecognition. And that's precisely what Honeth is observing, a normative expectation of recognition that may have multiple possible responses, including disappointment. At the same time, that concreteness is the source of the concept for Honeth. The demands of social integration can only be understood, he says, as referring to the normative principles of a political ethics because, and to the extent that, they are mirrored in the expectations of socially integrated subjects. So recognition as a claim is already shaping our interactions. That's his his understanding. It's culturally shaped and it's subject-centered. And as Honis would later remark in an interview, his project isn't therefore characterized by turning up and telling people that they ought to be concerned with being recognised. That's not very helpful. Um, Instead, uh, they're already talking in the language of recognition, he says. We do not have to come as theoreticians and tell them to take it up. And on this point, Nancy Fraser agrees because she characterises these shared intuitions of justice as what she calls folk paradigms. These um, usual traditional ways in which we expect recognition, we expect justice and social integration. So these feelings of social injustice are always shaped by public discourse, it's worth acknowledging that. But crucially for Honef, that discourse is not arbitrary. Rather, it's connected to deeper normative principles that determine the linguistic horizon of socio-moral thoughts and feelings in a particular society. So there's there's an almost transcendental claim here that Honeth is making. As we'll see, Fraser is not wild about that. The second point that I want to make about uh, about Honeth is is precisely why he feels able to make this transcendental move, which is that he feels that um, what's driving his work is an almost anthropological intuition that humans are in fact constituted by recognition. So to quote him, human beings depend on social forms of recognition in order to develop an identity and to gain a certain understanding and sufficient form of self-relation. So consequently for Honeth, when he discusses recognition in relation to social justice and social integration, uh, he understands experiences of misrecognition to potentially damage one's very self-understanding. And it's this anthropological insight that I think distinguishes Honeth from from other critical theorists, and it certainly distinguishes him from Fraser. However, recognition is only one of the folk paradigms that I want to talk about that are at play in this debate. So let me turn to Nancy Fraser, who recalls to us the paradigm of redistribution. Now, it was Fraser's contention in 2005 that there had been a shift in the way that Um, Feminist movements of emancipation were arguing for their goals. Uh, She suggested that these movements were taking up the category of recognition, which was to be valued, but simultaneously abandoning the concept of redistribution as a critical factor. Which, in her view, had been at the heart of the critical theory perspective. This is the first quotation on your sheet, I think. Whether the question was violence against women or gender disparities in political representation, feminists increasingly resorted to the grammar of recognition to press their claims. Unable to make headway against injustices of political economy, they preferred to target harms resulting from androcentric patterns of cultural value or status hierarchies. The result was a major shift in the feminist imaginary. Whereas the previous generation pursued an expanded ideal of social equality, this one invested the bulk of its energies in cultural change. Now it's worth noting that honeth kind of agrees with this, he sees this shift happening as well, so this isn't the basis of their, of their um, distinction. What Fraser is concerned is being left behind are these claims of redistribution, so it's just worth naming what she thinks those are. Uh, she's talking here, in terms of redistribution, about things like economic exploitation, so one's labour being appropriated, uh, marginalisation, being confined to certain kinds of jobs, or no jobs at all. Or deprivation, so struggles with wage levels, that kind of thing. And Fraser in her analysis includes things like subcontracting, temporary work, non-unionised work, that kind of thing. But we might also point to things like welfare, (coughs) intelligence, that kind of stuff. But the demands for social justice, she thinks, that are being made by these emancipatory movements are increasingly away from economic equality or material <coughs> redistribution, instead looking at cultural um, recognition of collective identity. Now her assessment of this change is ambivalent. She acknowledges that this culturalist shift has resulted in important work because it's seeking to tackle forms of male dominance and she acknowledges that for too long economic class-based analyses missed important cultural forms of exclusion, like status hierarchies and institutionalised disrespect. It's a classic limitation of white feminism, for example. And recognition does indeed present serious claims that we want to take seriously. This is also on your handout. Those might include cultural domination, being subjective to patterns of interpretation and communication that are associated with another culture and are alien and or hostile to one's own. Uh, Non-recognition, being rendered invisible via the authoritative, representational, communicative and interpretive practices of one's own culture. And disrespect, being routinely maligned or disparaged in stereotypic public cultural representations and or in everyday life interactions. Now these these misrecognitions, rather, are for Fraser all to do with social subordination in the sense of being prevented from participating as a peer in social life. So in and of themselves, they're they're not great, but the problem with this in terms of social justice and social integration is that they prevent that individual from participating fully and freely uh, in a wider social community. So they are fundamentally political interests as far as Fraser is concerned. What then is her concern about the shift to center such normative demands? Two. Two reasons. The first is the personal erasing the political, and the second is the kind of false antithesis, the either-or that might be set up when these two lenses are being discussed. So looking at the first of those concerns. If you understand recognition in purely personal terms, Fraser suggests, where you associate it with psychological harm to identity, which is how she's characterising Honour, That has the potential to um, to erase the difference between the personal and the political and potentially, therefore, ultimately displacing the political entirely. What critical theory demands is a lens from social activity by which wider social transformation can be established. And her concern is that if you stick with the psychological effect on an individual, That isn't in and of itself a political issue. It's not something you can build a collaborative project around. I'll be interested to see whether or not um, people accept that critique, in fact. Um, But certainly that's one of Fraser's main concerns. And it is interesting that we see this collapse away from the political into the cultural as something that theologians have remarked on as well. And I'm thinking here of recent work in black theology by Vincent Lloyd, Um, under the title of Afro-Pessimism and Christian Hope, where he charts the changes in the objectives of black theology following its systematic articulation in the 1960s. So he suggests that the subsequent wave of black theologians that came after that first generation make a turn from the political to the cultural. And as contextual theology became more diversified, black theology became a voice from and for its particular culture. However, Lloyd argues that the emphasis on cultural diversity can prompt um, a kind of too flat, uncritical praise for diversity as such. Um, whilst a rising Afro-pessimism from black studies contends that such cultural exposure is pyrrhic, but it's only commodifying black culture for white consumption, doesn't actually deal with the more fundamental um, unjust frameworks that are guiding those cultures. And we see that um, that concern about the personal erasing the political even more sharply in those Marxist thinkers who are receiving Fraser back into that more Marxist kind um, of discussion. So thinkers like Ashok Kumar, Adam Elliot Cooper, Shruti Iyer, and uh, Daniel Gupuyal, um are all kind of concerned with the way in which the personal erases the political because it doesn't allow you to talk about these more fundamental structures. So they argue. The acceptance and valorisation of one's identity as both the start and end point of politics leaves us with diversification within contemporary power structures as the only conceivable goal. That's And this name's, I think, exactly Fraser's concern about personalised forms of identity politics, where she understands there to be less of a commitment to social change than there is to personal fulfilment and the risk that the personal becomes the only way in which one can participate in a debate on social justice. Um, And she sees this turn towards recognition as kind of being taken up by what she calls uh, hegemonic neoliberal concerns. She thinks that that those with money kind of delighted in this shift because actually it meant that they did not have to any longer talk about radical forms of economic inequality. So she thinks there's a tragic historical irony in this, that's her language, instead of arriving at a broader and richer paradigm that could encompass both redistribution and recognition, you trade a truncated paradigm for another, truncated economism for a truncated culturalism. But really what's at play for her isn't just, oh we're spending our time on on something that she doesn't think is sufficiently political, but rather that this ends up opposing the genuine political claims of recognition to the genuine political claims of redistribution. That's her concern and that I think is something we can find really familiar in the way that political discourse is going right now. So if we turn to something like identity politics for example and really I should note (coughs) it's Fraser who who makes this link. She suggests that these folk paradigms kind of find um, kind of find articulation in um, specific social movements, and the politics of redistribution gets equated with class politics, and the politics of recognition gets assimilated to identity politics. And Kumar et al, um, who I've mentioned before, observed from their perspective that there is an increasing and contrived opposition between class politics and identity politics in mainstream political and media parlance. And this is why I think you might well be familiar with the kind of oppositions that they're talking about. The opposition of the two, class and identity, results in a malformation of identity politics as purportedly sidelining the so-called white working class in its desperate attempts to appeal to women, people of color, and other marginalized communities. So there's a, I think this is one of the quotations on your sheet. The struggles of race, gender, sexual marginalities are situated in opposition to economic dispossession of usually white men. And this economic dispossession is not located in the structural conditions of capital, but in the unjust squandering of resources on the less deserving on migrants, people of colour and queer people. Now, this seems to me to be the fruit of what Fraser was diagnosing a report 15 years ago when she suggests that we may end up with class and identity being opposed. She suggests that the way in which that's being characterized in contemporary discourse is um, effectively taking the, the strength of the social movement away from both redistribution and recognition, in fact. So her solution, to reframe redistribution and recognition as dimensions of justice. Her ultimate contention is that recognition alone cannot bear the entire burden of critical theorizing. By itself, it is not sufficient to capture the normative deficits of contemporary society, the the societal processes that generate them, and the political challenges facing those seeking emancipatory change. So I want to be really clear here because Fraser's been quite critical of some of the recognition work. Her intention is not the erasure of identity as a political category through which one can seek wider social transformation. Nor is she trying to erase the politics of recognition from movements themselves. Indeed, she argues that shared economic dispossession includes pressures that are compounded when class inequalities of distribution are overlaid with status inequalities of recognition. So she wants to retain recognition, but reframe it as a question not of self-realization, but of um, instead being a question of justice having a normative significance that goes beyond its significance to that one individual person. So. Thus, she suggests, both redistribution and recognition should be cast as irreducible necessary dimensions of justice, and what holds them together is the way that they both impact on the parity of participation in social political life. Fraser argues, what's wrong with misrecognition? Well, one should say that it is unjust that some individuals and groups are denied the status of full partners in social interaction as a consequence of institutionalized patterns of cultural value in whose construction they have not equally participated and which disparage their distinctive characteristics or the distinctive characteristics assigned to them. In later works, she re-emphasizes this: When such patterns of disrespect and disesteem are institutionalized, they impede parity of participation just as surely as do distributive inequalities. And there was a recent um, article in The Guardian gathering various pieces of research together to do with the way in which um, those from uh, minoritized ethnic identities were treated in um, the voting patterns during the most recent election. So um, the, the gathered research effectively suggested that there was a 3.6 penalty for uh, anyone standing who was a person of colour. Two observations to make about Fraser as I conclude on her thinking. The first is um, that since this work, which is really in the early 2000s, Fraser has further complexified her dimensions of justice by adding a third, which is to talk in transnational terms. So following her analysis that injustices are to do with parity of participation, she thinks that redistributive and recognition problems often cross national borders. So the transnational concerns are also um, uh, potentially being blocked in terms of priority of participation. And we don't have time to kind of grapple with this as much as I'd like, but for those who are interested in what they've been reconstructing, that's a thread to pursue. Secondly, Fraser deliberately stops short of two things. Um, Firstly, she's not offering a concrete political solution to what you do in relation to redistribution or recognition problems. You're kind of on your own there. Um, start your own emancipatory movement, I think would be her suggestion. At the same time, she also refrains from um, turning to the human condition, as we see Axel Honneth doing, where he suggests that this, even these personal experiences of misrecognition are to do with how the, the human person themselves are, are constituted. Um, nevertheless, I still think there is this implicit reliance on um, what Mitchell Abulafia calls the quasi-transcendental, so Fraser still wants recognition and redistribution to be these shared, accepted norms that should be shaping work towards social justice and social integration. What she doesn't want is to have a conversation about that in terms of ethics. She thinks that as soon as you start talking about goods, um, you're into sectarianism. That's what she calls. That's what she calls it. Yeah, already someone's not happy with that. But, that's what. <laughs> <laughs> but this is deliberate, right? She isn't saying she hasn't just forgotten about ethics. She's not suggesting that um, you know she's doing the important stuff and you ethicists can go away. Um, instead, she's suggesting that um, her job as a critical theorist is to provide ways of thinking about justice that can be reached by multiple ethical visions. So this normative level is something where uh, a Catholic ethicist and a Protestant ethicist and a a non-believing ethicist can all meet and say, actually, I also believe in redistribution and recognition. I think those are concerns of justice for the human person because of how I understand the human person and my ethical vision of life. And so too can you and so too can a third party. So the goal for her is to supply categories that are really congruent with how people are claiming justice, but to do so in ways that require us to do our own work, to ground them and justify them in our own traditions. So this is what Maureen Juncker-Kenny calls co-founding. That's the job of a plural kind of worldview. And she is straightforwardly uh, kind of plural, I think, in her worldview in this sense. what she wants for the claims of justice are to permit one to justify claims for recognition as morally binding under modern conditions of value pluralism. That's what she wants. So, Honef, as far as she's concerned, is, is not going about critical theory in the right way. Look, he's got opinions about the nature of the human person, he's terrible. Um, and she just dismisses this, um, this approach with the suggestion that Honef grounds his theory of justice. In a conception of human flourishing. How terrible. <laughs> um, if he were to offer any content to that vision of flourishing, he would inevitably reduce the claim for justice to what she calls merely another ethical good amongst others. Um, this would be sectarian. So Fraser concludes her project by refusing to provide either a practical networking or an ethical basis for engaging in her work. These are tasks for other people. Yeah, these are not the, the proper tasks for a critical theorist. However, I am not a critical theorist. <laughs> I am interested in human flourishing, um, And I'm interested in how the nature of the human person and her goods might be reflected through these lenses on justice. And I want to do this because... I really prize what Fraser is attempting here to include concrete and symbolic concerns, both economic and social exclusions within an account of justice. And this dual lens of irreducible claims to me does seem to be compelling as an account of how we're currently articulating contemporary claims on justice. And I appreciate her attempt to render these in a form that's plurally available like that idea of co-founding, I find to be really um, very fruitful, uh, fruitful for wider political thinking. We can come to that if we have time in our conversation. Moreover, I do think that this clarification of what's going on um, when we oppose class and identity in these categories of social justice is really helpful. That actually we're, we're just looking through multiple facets of actually a shared claim to justice. So I find that very helpful as well. Um, finally, it also strikes me uh, that her analysis may offer some important challenges to Catholic theology. And we'll see firstly whether or not um, Catholic social teaching kind of can recognise these lenses of redistribution and recognition, but then also whether or not Catholic theology can provide us with that founding that I think is missing. So um, turning now then to redistribution in Catholic social teaching. Now, redistribution in CST might seem like the more significant challenge of the two lenses because it names much more clearly the Marxist origins of political theory. And of course, I should note there have been um, quite important attempts to think Marxism through Catholicism, um, especially in the new Catholic left of the 1960s, for example. But Catholic social teaching doesn't. I mean, it just doesn't go there. It's very... Inevitably deeply concerned with the dehumanizing qualities of what's going on in the Marxist system. That's a concern. Nevertheless, even in the early example, Herrera Navarra, and this one of these early formalized expressions of Catholic social theology, does frame obligation um, between human persons with respect to economics in terms that I think we might recognize as redistributive. So, for example, this quotation is on the second side of your handout. Uh, Doubtless, before deciding whether wages are fair, many things have to be considered, but wealthy owners and all masters of labour should be mindful of this, that to exercise pressure upon the indigent and the destitute for the sake of gain, and to gather one's profit out of the need of another, is condemned by all laws, human and divine, with all the greater reason, because the labouring man is, as a rule, weak and unprotected, and because his slender means should, in proportion to their scantiness, be accounted sacred. Now, setting setting aside the very intense paternalism that's at play in that particular um, extract, to gather one's profit out of the need of another, um, there's something at play here to do with distribution, to do with a just due. And we see that, I think, even more sharply um, in examples from the early traditions of the church. So thinkers like Basil the Great, for example, um, so Basil of Caesarea, is really straightforward about this. The bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage chests belongs to the naked. The footwear mouldering in your closet belongs to those without shoes. Thus, however many are those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. Uh, And I think we see this um, later on also in *Rerum Navarum when the question is specifically on wages and labour because the principle of justice becomes to be invoked. Uh, again, this is on the sheet. Were we to consider labour merely insofar as it is personal, doubtless it would be within the workman's right to accept any rate of wages whatsoever. For in the same way as he is free to work or not, so is he free to accept a small wage or even none at all. <coughs> I don't know who does that, but okay, we'll go with <laughs> <then>. it. <laughs> Our conclusion must be very different if, together with the personal element in a man's work, we consider the fact that work is also necessary for him to live. These two aspects of his work are separable in thought, but not in reality. The preservation of life is the bounden duty of one and all, and to be wanting therein is a crime. There underlies the dictate of natural justice more imperious and ancient than any bargain between man and man, namely that wages ought not to be insufficient, to support a frugal and well-behaved wage earner." Again, some lovely paternalism there. The frugal and well-behaved wage earner going to think what good behaviour looked like in the end of the 19th century. I don't think I would qualify. So this is not exactly the destruction of class difference um, that is imagined in more extreme or Marxist forms of redistribution, let's be clear. Still, the encyclical con- concludes Among the many engraved duties of rulers who would do their best for the people, the first and chief is to act with strict justice, with that justice that is called distributive toward each and every class alike. This requirement of justice as distributive is perhaps sharper in some later examples of CST, which are perhaps less clearly shaped by this kind of top-down model of care for the poor by the rich ruler, so, uh, John Paul II, for example, suggested that um, in every system, regardless of the fundamental relationships within it between capital and labour, wages, that is to say, remuneration for work, are still a practical means whereby the vast majority of people can have access to those goods which are intended for common use, both <coughs> the goods of nature and manufactured goods. Hence, in every case, a just wage is the concrete means of verifying the justice of the whole socio-economic system, and in any case, of checking that it is functioning justly. Now, these are goods to be held for the common, for all, and this is um, this is one of the places where Catholic social teachings, um, uh, kind of tap root back into Thomas Aquinas, is perhaps most clear: the idea that even the wealthy don't own their wealth, exactly. It is held for the good of the whole. So even while on one hand Catholic social teaching is always keen to protect ownership and not to kind of collapse into the kind of communist redistributive uh, model, there is still here a sense in which, um, yeah, the the money is not held for oneself, but for others. The distribution through wages is one of the ways in which that that can occur. Nevertheless, it still continues to reflect the kind of ordering hierarchy at play. I think we have to accept that. Uh, It's worth noting that also in Laborum Exercens*, which is where that quotation came from, this distributive principle is worked out as a transnational requirement, which is quite interesting given where Fraser ends up going. Um, To quote, the disproportionate distribution of wealth and poverty and the existence of some countries and continents that are developed and of others that are not call for a levelling out, and for a search for ways to ensure just development for all. Now this is a trajectory that explicitly draws from Mater et Magistra, from Populorum Progressio, and can, I think, be drawn into Evangelii Gaudium and Laudato Si. Laudato Si, I think, however, adds one very important addition, which is the acknowledgement that the goods for distribution are finite. Um, It notes... Climate change is a global problem with grave implications, environmental, social, economic, political, and for the distribution of goods. And it proceeds to connect that to consumption. This is a problem, again, on the transnational level. So I find it really interesting that CST is pretty willing to talk about redistribution when it comes to um, relationships between states, uh, in contrast with what it will or will not tell the state to do within its own kind of constituency. So a longer quotation from Lad after C. To blame population growth instead of extreme and selective consumerism on the part of some is one way of refusing to face the issues. It is an attempt to legitimise the present model of distribution, where a minority believes it has the right to consume in a way which can never be universalized, since the planet could not even contain the waste products of such consumption. So there's a shift here from the assumption of abundance that you might see in something like Rarum Navarum to an acknowledgement that there are finite resources. Although I don't think that CST assumes um, a kind of natural hostility about how we do that, um, which might give us a bit more optimism for the future. (laughs) Um, But what we do have is a requirement that that prompt a redistributive conversation now, uh, given our, times, our time constraints, these are obviously really fragmentary pieces um, I'm, I'm interested to see whether or not um, these examples resonate with your picture of CSD, what else you might bring, what tensions there might be. Um, but I think it's, it's just worth um, acknowledging that redistribution is at play here, at least, although exactly what it looks like, and exactly why it's at play, we need to work out. Recognition then in CST. So, while perhaps less evidently Marxist, um, I think recognition nevertheless may also be quite difficult to work out in relation to CST. We initially see an interesting parallel of social observation uh, between Fraser's narrative of recognition overlaying redistribution in John XXIII's Patcham in tariffs So, uh, he suggests they, meaning humankind, why, why John 23 doesn't include himself in humankind, I do not know. But he does not. <laughs> um, humankind began by claiming their rights principally in the economic and social spheres, and then proceeded to lay claim to their political rights as well. Finally, they turned their attention to acquiring the more cultural benefits of society. Uh, it continues later on. They insist on being treated as human beings, <laughs> with a share in every sector of human society, in the socio-economic sphere in government and in the realm of learning and culture. It continues on later by acknowledging the particular claims to recognition arising from women in relation to those same spheres. Quote, the part that women are now playing in political life is everywhere evident. Far from being content with a purely passive role or allowing themselves to be regarded as a kind of instrument, they're demanding both in domestic and in public life, the rights and duties which belong to them as human persons. We continue to demand them, but nevertheless. Um, this is probably the clearest reference that I found to the recognition of a distinct group requiring equality of participation, and um, that I found in sort of in the corpus as a whole, in the way that Fraser seems to require. Most other examples to do with recognition tend to be more interpersonal, um, that's what we have characterised. So the current pope, bo- uh, the current pope, for example, Um, has used this phrase concrete recognition of dignity um, quite a lot, especially in um, some of the addresses that he gave in Eastern Europe, for example. Um, A lot of language about the bonds of communion um, becoming weavers of unity in our cities, which is just beautiful, in fact. But it's mutual recognition and fraternity. So it's still these effective (coughs) possibilities between um, persons that I think are being evoked here. Um, So recognition in the CST model seems to lapse into this language of love, the interpersonal, which of course is precisely what Fraser thinks is not sufficient as a foundation for um, a kind of plurally available set of normative principles. Um, Johan de has noted, of course, that there's been a historical pattern of love language um, overlaying justice language, Um, but um, again, that's a, a longer conversation. For now, I think... Um, it may be that we can acknowledge that Fraser levels a significant challenge against CST. That if we want to use mutuality and fraternity as our basis for um, seeking justice, we need to make those links. We need to find a way in which we can universalise those principles. And of course, it's also worth noting that there are any number of practical ways in which the Church fails to acknowledge claims to recognition in terms of parity of participation. Still, I think there are some places where the framing of recognition can be seen, not just in terms of the interpersonal. And There's a really interesting um, reference in a document that comes from the then head of the Holy See delegation to the UN uh, at the time of the Durban Report Um, that follows, we need to explore new ways to foster for the future, the harmonious coexistence and interaction of individuals and peoples. In full respect of each other's dignity, identity, history, and tradition. We need a culture, to use the words of the then Pope John Paul II, in which we recognise in every man and woman a brother and a sister with whom we can walk together, with whom we can together walk the path of solidarity and peace. Now, on one level, of course, this brother-sister familial language is still doing that interpersonal work that Fraser's so concerned with. But as Honeth has actually observed, that word solidarity is doing something else. It's not the same as love. It's not the same as agape, for example, precisely because solidarity names the prospect of a shared political project. <laughs> so we're used to solidarity being referred to in terms of activity, yes, that um, solicitude sort of, or quotation that we always use, the firm and, dis- and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. But it's really crucial, I think, that that's understood not just as active, but collective. So further reinforced, of course, by the principle of subsidiarity that demands that in any particular situation of social injustice you're actually working with those who are involved in the situation. You're working across different interests. And it seems to me that the contributive character of all persons being acknowledged in the shape of the work to be done is at play here in subsidiarity and solidarity, how they work together. And in this intervention on the Durban report, we see that specifically in relation to identity and tradition. And there are some other concrete examples as well, it's worth noting. Um, Although there have been some really uh, kind of horrifying reports from this particular part of the church in terms of um, sexual abuse, It is worth noting that the gender policy that has been written by um, the Catholic Church in India is just superb. I don't know. Has anyone read it? It's really good. (laughs) It's full of really practical things like accessibility and having women's centres and the significance of domestic violence. It's really very good. So its title is um, The Empowerment of Women in Society and Church. It's a super example. So I think we can welcome that political solidarity connection um, to recognition and that sort of India example, while also underlining the frequent and systematic failure to offer the symbolic resources of recognition amongst the diverse groups who make up the world church. Our current Pope is perhaps not particularly thoughtful um, in the way that he speaks about women, for example. Um, Women are harmonious. Um, That got repeated a great deal in some meditations of his. Um, And there are good examples of critiques on race as well, um, that are are pretty current. So Katie Walker-Grimes's book on um, fugitive saints, for example, uh, is a good example. So I think there is scope here for the kind of social transformation that is the constitutive question of critical theory. Being of serious use in helping CST to articulate more sharply its commitment to justice in the common good and confronting it with what it's missing in both of these lenses of redistribution and recognition. But that can only be so if we can indeed found these lenses in our vision of the human person. So let me talk really briefly as I come to the conclusion of this paper on the value of the human person as such uh, and the person's agent. So like Honev, my instinct is that there is an anthropological intuition at the heart of justice questions. That both justifies the claims as just and consequently summons us and motivates us in our response. And for CST and for Catholic theology more widely, of course, this is a theological insight. And it's one we might frame even in terms of recognition in a way. So another ancient source, Nyssa's every this um, first hominy on love of the poor, Speaking of the poor, he suggests the Lord in his goodness has given them his own countenance in order that it might cause the hard-hearted, those who hate the poor, to blush with shame. Just as those being robbed thrust before their attackers the images of their king to shame the enemy with the appearance of the ruler. Now literally Gregory means that someone being robbed might might sort of hold up a coin with the face of the king to shame the robber into not taking it. Um, again, I don't I don't think that that really works in practice. <laughs> don't attempt it. That's not self-defense advice. Um, but we see in, in Gregory's homily there the way that the poor are holding up the face of Christ in their very own faces, the, the, their true sovereign. So always at play um, in the value of the human person is this Christic quality to being made in the image of God, that there is something to be valued in every human person. Again... You can leave that on the interpersonal level, but I think that that's insufficient for the way that CST engages with the idea of being made in the image of God. I think there is something at play in the political framing of its principles, because that human person is not just, you know, the poor to be looked after, but rather a series of agents who are engaged in the transformation of their environment who are engaged in a wider social transformation of their communities. And it strikes me that that language of dignity of the person, of solidarity, of subsidiarity, is geared toward our participation in seeking the common good in a way that requires questions of redistribution and of recognition to be political questions. This is a, a register in which they must be addressed. I think this is a nourishing idea for CST. It's somewhat tentative. So in terms of what we do with that, I think I'd like to have a conversation about it. But um, I'll conclude um, just briefly, I think, with um, some words from Evangelii Gaudium, which is itself reflecting on matter of Agostra. We're not simply talking about ensuring nourishment or a dignified sustenance for all people, but also their general temporal welfare and prosperity. This means education, access to healthcare and above all, employment. For it is through free, creative, participatory, and mutually supportive labor that human beings express and enhance the dignity of their lives." There are really strong echoes of Honneth for me in this. Honneth himself is um, much more comfortable with the language of solidarity than he would be with something like agape. He thinks solidarity is a term that goes beyond um, these sectarian limits. Um, I still think there's something distinctively Catholic about how we conceive of solidarity, but it's worth noting that in some of his really recent work, is attempting to appropriate solidarity for precisely this purpose. Still, um, in terms of Catholic social teaching, what we have at play here again is the way in which solidarity and subsidiarity call us to understand the human person in terms of a contributor to the wider good. This is what is being protected in the image of God. As Honneth and Fraser remind us, working solely with a loving image does not necessarily address questions of justice, nor render those claims significant for socially transformative purposes. So CST, while also um, seeking to uh, respond to the symbolic significance of the human person, Bearing the image of God is also trying to raise a critical lens to structures of injustice in reality (coughs) that do not take that person's (coughs) fundamental dignity seriously in relation to the parity of their participation in their own transformation. And in fact, we'll, we'll address the blocks on that meaningful social participation, whether it's economic, cultural, or political. Our response to this politically will necessarily be varied because we're exercising, exercising our participative agency, which CST is trying to protect. But at the very least, it seems to me that CST is calling as a political endeavour, like Fraser, for both redistribution and recognition in the sense of being both the reality and the symbol. And as Laura Kilbride puts it when writing on the New Catholic Left, this might be the kind of language fitting us for revolution.